This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior. Oh, one more time. Sing that chorus. This is my story. This is my story, this is my song, raising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, raising my Savior. God's children said. Thank you. You may be seated this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me to the book of Haggai in the Old Testament, about three books to the left of the Gospel of Matthew. If you'll turn there with me and to chapter 2. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we have started a new sermon series, and it's entitled uh, Major Messages from a Minor Prophet, and we come this morning to the third in that series as we begin looking at chapter 2. And I just want to, again, just thank uh, Brian Snyder and for Melita and for all of those who have come this morning. Pat, thank you for your testimony and for the kids coming and, and singing this morning. And, and uh, you know, it's one of those things that is truly an encouragement for us whenever they're here. We look forward to it every year. Um, and, and we're excited about it because it's a ministry that we are actively involved with. Now, admitted, we're not over in Powder Springs every day like you guys are. Uh, but nevertheless, you are, you are in our hearts and you are never far from our thoughts. Uh, I mentioned earlier about the fact that every uh, portion of every dollar that you give goes to help feed those children there and to do the ministry of the work that's going on there. Um, Snyder told me earlier and... and and I hope that you will permit me to, to say this to you as a way of encouraging you, that outside of the home church that, that started Calvary Children's Home, that Ivy Creek is the largest church that supports them outside of their home church. And that's, that just reflects back on the partnership that we're able to, to have with them and, and what an exciting time it is. And, and truly exciting because our intention is to continue that partnership in the years ahead. And, and it's an exciting, and it's an exciting time. But as it is with every scenario, I'm sure that there's discouragement. Sometimes it, it, it's not always easy, uh, any more than it is for us in doing the ministry that God's called us here to. I know that it's not always easy there. As a matter of fact, it's because of discouragement. Sometimes it's because of the the challenges that we experience as we serve the Lord that that we tend to to sometimes feel like maybe we want to quit, throw in the towel, and be done. If you've ever felt that way before, I want you to know this morning's sermon is, is just, just for you. And as we look at it today, I want you to notice that, that we're going to deal with, as I've titled this, this morning's sermon, uh, is encouragement for the discouraged. Encouragement for the discouraged. I read, I read a fictitious story, an apocryphal story one time about the devil. Evidently, he had collected too many things around his house and he figured it was time that he needed to do a clean out and do a garage sale. 
And so he took out all some of the things that he had, a lot of his tools that he had always used. And he said, you know, I'm not using these anymore. I'm going to lay them out there in the yard. I'm going to have a yard sale and invite people to come by and, and, and to buy them. And so he, he took out all these tools that he had been using. And they were a dastrous, dirty, wicked lot. Things like hatred and, and jealousy and, and deceit and lying and pride. And he laid them all out in the yard and put prices on them. And they were all variously priced. But then over to the side of the yard was a particular tool that... He didn't really want to sell, but he, he decided he would put it out there, but he put a very enormous price on it. It was a tool that was uh, really worn and very used, and, and the tool was labeled discouragement. And people, when they came along to want to look to see if there was anything they wanted to buy, they, they were interested in why this old, worn-out tool labeled discouragement, why was it so worn, and why was it the highest-priced tool that the devil wanted to sell and the devil said very quickly oh that tool is worth more to me than all the others you see when I can't bring my victims down with any of the rest of these tools I use discouragement because everyone is susceptible to it and so few people realize that it belongs to me now I readily admit that's a fictitious story but I want you to know this, how Satan uses discouragement and how susceptible every one of us in this room is to it is not fictitious at all. In light of that fact, let me just ask you a question this morning. You don't have to raise your hands. You don't have to say anything out loud. But have you ever been discouraged? Are you discouraged right now? You know, sometimes we get discouraged in a lot of areas, particularly in the Lord's work. And that that pertains as to what's being done within the confines of the Lord's house and, and the ministries that you're involved with here and the various things that you do. But, you know, it spreads outside of here. It spreads into the home. You know, God's called you, if you're married, to be a, the spouse that God has called you to be. That is, that's the Lord's work. It, it, it spreads into how you parent your children. You know, how you parent your children is, is the Lord's work as well. It moves even into the workplace. If you, you go into the workplace, God has called you to be a light there to a lost world. If you're in school, He's called you to be a light to those other students who surround you. And sometimes it can become discouraging being a part in doing the things that God has called you to do. And that's why I think this passage before us today is such a major message from this minor prophet. As we consider this text before us, I believe that, that some of us will come to understand that there are not only the reasons why we become discouraged. In other words, there are things that Satan uses to, to, to help us to become discouraged so that he can defeat us. But I also think that there's even greater reasons, as we're going to read in this passage this morning, for why we need to be encouraged and why we need to be energized for the work that God has called us to do. Now, just to reset what's going on in Haggai, for those who may not have been here before, back in chapter 1, we, we read where Haggai comes on the scene and, and he delivers a message from God to some post-exilic Jews. And what that means is there's some Jews who were in captivity, who were in, in Babylonian captivity, but who had been released from their captivity and allowed to go back to their homeland in Judah, specifically to go to Jerusalem, their capital city. But the first message of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai as a message of rebuke. And the reason why the Lord rebuked them was because they had traveled back to their home city, but they had failed to rebuild the temple that had been completely destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar back in 586 B.C. They had, they had just not gotten around to it. Their, their, their message was the time is just not right. 
for us to rebuild the temple. And God sent Haggai onto the scene to rebuke those Jews for their lack of activity and for their, in, their, uh, their inactive rebuilding of the temple. And then as we saw then the second message in this series, beginning in verse 12, we did see, though, that the Jews became obedient. As a matter of fact, it says that the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the people feared the presence of the Lord their God. And so what we learned is last week is that all of them got busy. They got busy and they responded by beginning to rebuild the temple. And then God gave them a second message. He says, I am with you, says the Lord in verse 13. And we saw a number of ways that his presence was with them, not the least of which, as we read in verse 14, that he stirred up their hearts to begin to rebuild the house of the Lord of hosts. And so that's really where the first chapter gets us. It's a rebuke of God and then a promise of God that his presence would be with them as they rebuilt the temple. And then we come to chapter 2. And by the time we get to chapter 2, nearly a month has passed. And in the period of that month, what we begin to see is that that well-worn and that often used tool of Satan, that tool of discouragement has begun to take its toll upon these Jews. Let's begin reading there. Chapter 2, verse 1. Hear this, in the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Jerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now, be strong. Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts once more, It is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord. Of hosts, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for this wonderful time that we have experienced this morning of gathering together to have our hearts encouraged by these these kids that we are able to help be a part of their lives. I pray for each and every one of them that you would keep your hand upon them. We don't believe there's any accidents with you. We believe that you have a plan for their life and that you desire to do something great through them. And for them, through your son Jesus, I pray for each and every one of them that they would come to experience that saving knowledge firsthand and that they would be lights in a dark world. I pray that not only for them, but for the rest of us. Lord, as we continue to serve you in the places that you've given us, we know there's no accidents with us either. So, Father, you have laid out for us the plan that you have. I pray that we would take steps faithfully, with encouragement, without fear, and we would continue to work for you. Pray this in the name of Christ, and I pray it for his sake. Amen. The 21st day of the seventh month. That means that the work has been going on there in Jerusalem for just about a month. 
And already, as we begin to see, there's discouragement. Discouragement has set in. It evidently had become clear to everyone involved that this was not going to be a quick rebuild. Not only that, but it was equally clear that the temple was not going to be nearly as ornate. It was not going to be nearly as majestic as the temple that Solomon had built on the same spot. That had become evident right away when they had first moved back and, 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 and begun to inhabit Jerusalem again. We find this in the historical book of Ezra, chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. What we read there is that when, when the foundation of the temple was first laid upon their return from captivity, the Bible says that many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, they wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet, Ezra says, many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. Can you just imagine having been there that day? A great noise erupted from all of the people. Some of them, some of them were, were, were rejoicing and they were shouting for joy over the fact that the temple was going to be rebuilt. Others of them were wailing crying because they remembered just how beautiful Solomon's temple had been and when they saw what was being laid to be rebuilt it was such a disappointment by the time we get to Haggai chapter 2 the wailing and the disappointment had won out it had permeated the entire group it's kind of like a, just, just, a little, just a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. Well, just a little bit of discouragement sometimes can come into a great amount of pessimism. And what you begin to see is by the 21st day of the seventh month, all the workers of the city of Jerusalem had become discouraged. And you can hear the murmuring that's beginning to take place around the work site. I don't know why we're doing this. This temple will never be as beautiful as Solomon's temple was. I mean... It won't ever be like it was in the past. It'll never be as great. It'll never be as grand. All the good old days, they've come and gone. It'll never be that good again. You see, the Lord knew what they were saying. The Lord was very aware of what was going on. That's the reason why I believe he sent Haggai to them with the question that he asked in verse 3. And the question that he asked in verse 3 wasn't really a question he expected them to respond to. It was just to let them know, I know what's going on in your hearts. Listen to verse 3 one more. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Now that question, I believe, establishes the problem that was facing these Jews. And it opens for us the first point that I want you to see. It's there on your outline in your bulletin. And the first point that I want you to note today is simply this. We become spiritually paralyzed by discouragement when we live in the past and make false comparisons. When we make false comparisons between ourselves and others or between our ministry and other ministries, when we live in the glory of the past rather than the present, we become discouraged at those comparisons. And listen, it can spiritually paralyze you. As this text makes clear, the Jews couldn't focus on the present. They couldn't focus on what God was going to do in the future because they were living in the good old days, the glory days of the past. 
The way things used to be had become so immortalized and even glamorized in their minds that they didn't believe that the rebuilding of the temple was even worth all the effort. What's the use? It'll never be as good as it was before. And that pessimism spread like a cancer among the people, even to those who were too young to recall the grandeur of Solomon's temple to begin with. Furthermore, what we realize is that by living in the past, they were making false comparisons. You know, one thing that I've come to, to learn as a pastor who pastors a church, it is easy to look horizontally at other churches and compare this church to some other church. And even to compare my ministry as a pastor with another pastor down the road. It's easy to do that and, and to think, well, I wonder why that's happening there and that's not happening here. Or I wonder why we're not experiencing the same things here or why we're going up against this kind of struggle and this kind of difficulty and other places don't seem to have that. You know, it's easy to do that. It's easy to, to make these false comparisons, but it's also dangerous. And here's why. No matter how many similarities there are between the two, they're not the same. That doesn't mean that there's not things that we can learn. There's not many, that doesn't mean that there's not things I can learn from another pastor. It doesn't mean that there's not things that this church can learn from the experiences of another church. It doesn't mean that as a, as a parent that there's not things that you can learn from other parents and from the experiences that they've had. Or as a, a husband or a wife that you cannot learn from the experiences of other husbands and wives. All of those things are possible. But then to measure your success or your failure based upon how you compare yourself with another will always lead to false conclusions. One person I read put it this way. He said, God is not obligated to treat us in exactly the same way he treats anyone else. Nor is he required to treat us today exactly as he did yesterday. Because God is God and we are not. He has the absolute right to do what he pleases. And if you think about that fact, the writer says, it renders all comparisons useless and counterproductive. And in this particular case, as we see here in Haggai, we realize just how counterproductive it truly was. You see, for these Jews to live in the past and to make all these false comparisons with the former temple to the one that they were commanded to rebuild... What that brought about was a great sense of discouragement in their lives to the point where the rebuilding process that God had commanded them to do was on the verge of stopping and grinding to a halt for a second time. And the warning for you and for me is that we must be careful with how we deal with the past. On the one hand, a proper view of the past can serve as a great stimulus to correct the present. And in that regard, it is a great tool that can be used. But on the other hand, an improper view of the past can actually stifle the new work that God desires to accomplish. We must be careful because judging by comparison can lead to despondency. So the first thing that we learn, the problem is revealed to us in this text that these Jews are discouraged, they're despondent, and they're tired and they're ready to throw in the towel because God's message through his prophet, though, is not complete. That's, he hasn't told them everything he wants to say. And we get to that message in verses 4 and 5, and I've summarized it with a second point on your outline this morning. The message that we need to recognize from there is simply this. The second point is that God calls us to abandon our fear 
and our spiritual paralysis by remembering his promised presence and recalling his past deliverances. You want to know how to overcome the spiritual paralysis and the discouragement in your life? Remember what God has promised you by his presence and remember the past deliverances of your life. That's exactly what, what Haggai came to deliver to these Jews. Three separate times in verse 4, you'll read these words, be strong. He, he delivers that message to Zerubbabel, he delivers it to Joshua, and he delivers it to the remnant of the people. Be strong, he says. He goes on to say, do not fear, in verse 5. And then later in verse 4, he also says for them to continue working. So there's your three commands that you get in verses 4 and 5. He says, he says be strong, continue working, do not fear. Be strong, continue working, do not fear. Now, when someone comes and tells you that, it's just like I'm patting you on the back saying, just be strong, you know, gut it out. Continue to do what you're doing. Don't, don't be afraid. You know, that, that sounds great. But the only way that those commands and that encouragement actually produces a change in our hearts is if we are convinced that what they are based on is greater than the things, the challenges that we're facing. And what I want you to know is that when Haggai delivers this message, when he tells them to be strong, when he tells them to continue working, when he tells them to not be afraid, he bases it on something very important. And the first thing that we recognize is he bases it on his presence. Notice that he, he, he repeats that same promise in verse 4 that he did back in chapter 1, verse 13. He says, I am with you. Now, I don't, I don't want you to miss the importance of that statement. You see, it was the fact that these Jews had God's presence, his promise of his presence with them that was what was going to allow them to be strong. They had been looking back at the glory days. They'd been looking back at Solomon's temple when God's glory rested there in the Holy of Holies. And they'd been thinking, well, it'll never be like that again. But God said, listen, the, the thing that brought the glory to the temple was my presence. It was my presence there that made it so glorious. And you've got me. I will be with you as you rebuild the temple there. That's where the promise of his presence comes in. And it's what helped them to go, look, just be strong. My presence will be with you. It's not only that, but his presence was rooted in his past deliverances. Did you notice there in verse 5, God reminds the Jews of the covenant that he had made with them when he delivered their forefathers and their ancestors out of Egyptian slavery? See, evidently those Jews had forgotten that God had been their deliverer. It had been God who had brought them out and, and saved them from captivity. They had, they had somehow forgotten the miraculous exodus. But the Lord reminds them of it in order that they might understand, listen, the same God who delivered your ancestors will be the same God who delivers you. The same God that your forefathers leaned on and trusted is the same God that you can lean on and trust. And he reminds them, I never left them nor forsook them. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you either. Now I want you to consider how comforting that must have been for these, these poor and discouraged and downhearted Jews. Almighty God had promised to be with them. And thinking about the past memories of the temple built by Solomon, all that had done was cause them to become discouraged. But reminding themselves of God's past promises gave them hope. This is what I would say. Sometimes we have good memories about bad things. 
What God wants us is to have good memories about the good things that he has done. You know, a few weeks ago, we, we looked at 1 Samuel 17, where David slayed the, the big giant, Goliath. And you'll recall that when he got on the scene, Goliath was out there spewing all of his hate and venom for, toward the Jews, and he was blaspheming God. And David could not get his mind wrapped around why there was not someone to go out and fight this Goliath and shut his mouth. And so he says, I'm going to go out there and I'll fight him. And so he goes to Saul, asks for permission, because Saul ultimately had to be the one who would allow him to do it. And King Saul says, ah, you're not big enough. You're not strong enough. You're not man enough. You're not old enough to go and fight him. And David said, wait a minute, time out. When I was a shepherd boy taking care of my father's sheep, whenever there would be a lion or a bear that would come to try to take one of those sheep, I would fight that lion or that bear. And then what we read is that David told King Saul, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. In other words, his whole point was is that God was with him when, when he had to face the lion and the bear, God would be with him today. God had delivered him from his past uh, fights and, and uh, the troubles that he had got in. God would continue to deliver him today. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what this text is reminding us as well. I like the way that Ray Pritchard has put it. He said, when your God is big, the task before you will be small. David's God was so big that Goliath didn't seem to be big to him at all. But the Jews of Haggai's day, they had a small God. And so the task of rebuilding the temple seemed overwhelming to them. And this is where this text really gets down and starts rattling the pans in our kitchen. You see, how you view God will radically affect the way you approach life. When you are discouraged and when you are disheartened and you are ready to quit, the question that you must ask yourself is if God is big enough to handle your problems. If your perception is, is that he is not, then you, just like these Jews of Haggai's day, you need to be reminded that God's promised his presence to you and that that presence is rooted in his past deliverances. This morning I want you to know if you're struggling with discouragement and you feel like you've been abandoned and you're just ready to throw your hands up and quit, the almighty God of the universe has promised that he will never leave nor forsake his children. He is a covenant God who keeps his promises. But I want you to know that that encouragement that God delivers to these discouraged Jews and these discouraged workers rebuilding this temple is still not done. Beginning in verse 6, we realize that our hope comes not only from the things that we see that has taken place in the past, but it also comes when we recognize what God has promised to do in the future. That leads me to the third point that I want you to see this morning. The third point is this. God encourages us to continued faithful service through the promise of future glory and the hope of eternal peace. The Lord tells his people that in a little while, he was going to shake heaven and earth, and the sea and the dry land, and all the nations. Now what we get is this picture of, a, of somebody out near a fruit tree, and the fruit has just gotten to that right point. And some of those limbs are way too high to be able to reach, and so you reach and you grab the base of that tree, and you just begin to shake it. And you're big enough to be able to really shake that tree to the point where the, 
the fruit just stops dropping, dropping to the ground and able to pick it up. That's, that's the image. It's the image that we see here of what God says he's going to do. And, and what he says is he's going to do that in judgment on all the nations. He's going to shake them. And the result is going to be this, that the desire of all nations will fill the temple with glory. Now, depending on what version you're reading out there, you will see that the desire of all nations is capitalized. And the reason that that's the case is because many understand this as a prophecy about Jesus. And I'll get to that in just a moment. But I want to look at what did the people, what did these Jews in, in, in Jerusalem rebuilding this temple in 520 B.C., how would they have understood this? Well, you see, they'd been ready to quit. They'd been ready to quit the rebuild process because... They didn't have the same resources that Solomon had had. They didn't have all the silver and the gold and the precious jewels that Solomon had used to build the temple. By comparison, what they were going to build seemed insignificant and worthless in their sight. But here, the Lord is telling these discouraged and these disheartened Jews that though they may not have much in the way of silver and gold, they didn't need to stay encouraged because God was fixing to shake the tree. And when he shook the tree, it was going to pour into Jerusalem all the resources that they would need to rebuild that temple. As a matter of fact, if you go on back to the book of Ezra and you read chapter 6 of Ezra, you will find that Darius, who was the Persian king, made a decree that all of the nations outside of Israel would be taxed and that tax money would flow in to help the Jews rebuild and finalize the temple. It's an amazing story about how God did exactly what he said he would do. He would shake the tree. He would shake the nations and the fruit would come in. But then I want you to notice the first part of verse 9. The Lord goes on to say, The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former. Now this was something that they couldn't see at the time. But nevertheless, though they couldn't see it, what they understood was that the Lord had a great purpose that he was going to accomplish through this temple. So great, in fact, that the glory of this present temple that they were rebuilding would exceed anything of the magnificence of Solomon's temple. How could that be? I mean, Solomon's temple was so magnificent, so glorious. People traveled from all over to see it. But this one was shabby and it was small and... And and it just didn't have everything that Solomon's did. How is it possible that the glory of this second temple was going to be greater than the first? You see, for hundreds of years, that question hung out there. But the day would come when Jesus Christ himself, the desire of all nations, would walk through these temple precincts there in Jerusalem. And I want you to know he is the greater glory that God promised to the people in Haggai's day. But that's still not all. I want you to notice the final word of encouragement there we see in verse 9. Because there the prophet says, in this place I will give peace. You see, peace was what they were really looking for. That's what these post-exilic Jews wanted. They wanted a place of rest. They wanted a place where they weren't constantly under attack. They weren't in fear of being dragged away into captivity again. In fact, that's what the Jews have always wanted, was to go back to their homeland and to have a place where they could exist in peace. And yet we know that even today they still do not have that fully. So how are we to understand the peace that the Lord promises here? What is it? How does it come about? Well, according to the further revelation of Scripture, we realize that this peace would ultimately be realized through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
You see, not only would Jesus, the desire of all nations, actually walk through the temple gates, as we read about and as we studied in the Gospel of Mark, ushering in God's greater glory, but at the end of his life, according to what we read in the Gospels, when Jesus was stretched out on the cross and when he died for my sins and for your sins, you know what the Bible tells us? That at the moment of his death, that the veil of that very temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, that veil had been placed there in the Holy of Holies of this temple that had been rebuilt and it was there as a constant reminder to the people that you are separated from God that you can never approach Him because of your sin and because of your unholiness, but because of His great worth and His great holiness, you will never be able to come to Him. And yet when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that veil was torn into from top to bottom, illustrating for all to see that Jesus Christ had done for them what they could never do for themselves. He had brought peace. In this place, the Lord says, I will give peace. And what that means... What that means is that those who will run to Jesus, this Jesus who stands between us and God, we will experience the peace that God promises. And here's how that peace brings encouragement to those of you who may be discouraged this morning. You see, no matter what you're facing, no matter how difficult the circumstances and no matter how discouraging the scenario, if you have the security of knowing that peace has been made between you and God, if your confidence is in the one who died in your place in order to bridge the gap between the Father and you, if, if you recognize that that gap was created because of your sinfulness and rebellion and you repent of those sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can face your struggles that you're going through and you can overcome the discouragement that you are experiencing with confidence. Confidence that Christ has done for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And that allows you to face the difficulty you have with courage and with peace. And as a result, the Lord deals with you with grace and mercy, not with His justice. And as a consequence, you can do exactly as the Lord commands here. You can be strong you can continue working and you can do so without fear because Christ is your peace. So as we conclude today, let me just ask you once more. Are you discouraged? Are you experiencing fear and discouragement and despondency over the, over the role that God has called you to play in your life? If you are, let me follow up by asking this question. Is Christ your peace? Have you placed your faith and trust in the crucified and resurrected Savior? I want you to know that no encouragement will last apart from a positive answer to that question. I plead with you this morning to run to Jesus, to humble yourself before Him, to repent of your sins and to trust Him to save you. There can be no peace and no lasting encouragement in your life apart from the confidence and the security that He alone provides. Secondly, if Christ is your peace, then the question is, have you grown weary in well-doing? Are you afraid to get involved? Are you afraid to, to begin serving the Lord with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your strength? Then I would remind you of the message of this text. To be strong, to work, and do not fear because the Lord has promised His presence. 
And he has a purpose for what he's called you to do. And Christ has secured your peace with the Father. That leads me to my sermon in a sentence. My sermon in a sentence is this. When serving the Lord, discouragement and fear are overcome by releasing the past to focus on the continuing promises of God's presence, power, and peace. I want you to know, if possible, Satan will discourage you and rob you of your joy and hinder you from working with faith and courage to spread the gospel. He will use that well-worn, very important tool of discouragement in your life. But you you can be encouraged because the desire of all nations has secured our peace and he promises his power and his presence to aid us and to encourage us. Brothers and sisters, This is truly the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.